0: We're in a series on justification here at Bethel Church. We've been doing this teaching series for several weeks now. This is the second-to-last message in the series. And uh, I want to talk with you tonight about justification as freedom. Justification as freedom. The best kind of freedom, of course, is eternal freedom. Eternal life. Eternal freedom from the wrath of God. Which justification very clearly is about. But future freedom, while true, is only part of what justification frees us to. And by the time we leave here tonight, I want all of us to understand how justification relates to my life today and freedom uh, in many regards that, uh, that, it, that it will serve. One of the reasons I, I want to talk about this is that in... You know, when you do a series like this in, as a pastor, it means reading a ton and preparing and praying and writing and, and all the things that goes into doing this. And one of my prayers has been, God, take this aspect of faith and just drive it into my heart. I want, I want for the rest of my life, I want to look at life, church, everything just a little bit different in light of what I have learned in understanding in a new way, in a fresh way for this series, what it means to be justified in the eyes of God. And one reason I I say that is I see one of the weaknesses in my own life is that I often don't put my or find my identity in being declared righteous by God through faith. I tend to find my identity uh, and even sort of my sense of being right with God based on being a pastor or based on this church in the ebbs and flows. You know, when it's when it's ebbing up, I'm good with God. When it's ebbing down, I'm not good with God. I find myself sort of seeing myself through this grid and not seeing myself the way that Scripture and the Gospel calls me to see myself as a sinner who every day needs the grace of God Have you been saved by a declaration flowing from the grace of God through faith to me, which also was a gift? I am a beggar. I am in need of God. I need to see myself that way more. That's something God's doing in my life. I don't know how God's maybe been using this series in your life, but I guarantee you there's some stuff that we're going to talk about tonight that applies to all of us. So, Since it is the second-to-last message in the series, I'd like to do a very quick review of what we have seen so far. And what we have seen is that at its root, justification addresses the most basic impulse of the human heart, which is a sense within us that not everything is right between me and God. My conscience tells me that, and the Bible tells me that. Scripture tells me Romans 3.10, that there are none righteous, no, not one. And that means I'm part of that, no, not one, right? I am not right with God. I am born in sin. God is holy and righteous. And the only way to stand before a holy and righteous God is to be righteous, fully righteous, which the Bible says that we are not because of sin. Now, Does it feel that way in living life today? Just looking around at the people. Does it it feel like we're all in trouble? Does it feel like people are really, really, really concerned about uh, eternity, righteousness, the things that justification deals with? I say no. It seems to me that the vast majority of the people that I see in the community, and I see in the city, and I see at the mall, and I see around, are not even thinking about the reality that all of us are going to die. And there is going to be a moment when we leave this world and we step into the next one. And that world, the Bible says, is ruled and reigned and dominated by Almighty God, who is Angry at sin and angry at sinners who sends both of them to hell for all eternity. If we just grappled with what that means, what a difference that would make. But that's the God of the Bible. And we've used the analogy of Pompeii, the story of the Roman city, that people were just living their life thinking everything was fine and all the while Mount Vesuvius is building with lava and pressure and all of a sudden boom! Down that Ash came and wiped them out. They had no idea that day was their last day. And all of us live in a certain way like the people of Pompeii. We have no idea what day will be our last day, but we know that our last day is most certainly coming, isn't it? Are we ready for that day? Are you ready, friend, to pass from this world into the next And to step in front of a God who is thoroughly righteous. Are you ready for that? How can sinners be ready for that? This is what justification addresses so wonderfully, so powerfully. As we find with justification that this righteous God... Based on no merit of ours, no favor of ours, not because we're good people, not because we're American, not because we're this or that, but simply because of his grace that he declares unrighteous people like us to be righteous. Now you say, well, how does the righteous God do that and not be like lying? Because we are not righteous people and we have learned that he does this on the, and he can do this because of Jesus And the fact that Jesus died in our place, he took our guilt. When he was on the cross, God imputed, transferred our guilt to him on the cross. And when we believe in Jesus as Savior, God imputes, transfers his righteousness to our account. And we stand before God as perfectly moral human beings and God promises, I will always see you that way. That's justification. Does that mean that we are righteous people? No, we are not righteous people. That's the marvel of it. We are sinners. We were sinners. We, until we die, will always be sinners. And yet God says, I don't see you that way. I will never see you that way. I see you through the grid, through the prism of the righteousness of my own son. You are holy in my eyes. And this is what prepares us for the Vesuvius moment when we step into that next world. And there he is in all of his churning, burning, glorious majesty. And we feel the weight of his power and his holiness. And to realize in that moment, because of justification and the work of Jesus... That I, a sinner, Steve DeWitt, can stand before that volcano of divine glory, accepted and righteous forever. This is the wonder of the grace of God and how God goes about saving sinners from their sins. Romans 4, 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And it always will be. So justification very much has a future orientation to it as it prepares us for that moment that is coming. But it has an orientation towards today as well. And I am summarizing it with this word, freedom. God, through justification, sets us free today. Well, how does it do that? I'm glad you asked. I want to explain it, okay? I want to explain it. And uh, this is largely an application message, okay, from our series here. We're not dealing with one text in particular tonight. But just broadly to ask the question, how does justification change the way that I live my today? And the first thing I want us to see is that uh, that justification frees us from a performance mentality, a performance approach, what some people call legalism. Justification by grace through faith frees us from having to live that way. Now, in Scripture, just to, to give you one example, other than the book of Romans, which very clearly teaches on justification, the next clearest is the book of Galatians. And in Galatians, Paul writes this in Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See that verse there? Now, right now you're going, that doesn't, makes no sense to me at all. Well, here's the context of the letter of Galatians. Paul started the church at Galatia. After he left, some false teachers came in there and they were known as the Judaizers. They were basically saying, all of you Gentile Christians, you've got to submit now to the Mosaic law. You've got to obey all the things that we've been obeying for centuries. You can believe in Jesus, but you also got to do this other stuff. So their gospel was that it was grace plus obedience that equals salvation or justification paul hears about this and writes them this very scathing letter there's things in here that would make uh, almost any man here blush in galatians if you read it read it later as paul just uh he's not happy (laughs) he is not happy and he begins to probe in the letter asking them how did you receive this gospel he says in Galatians 3, 2, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Galatians 3, 3, Having begun by the Spirit, are you not being perfected by the flesh? Galatians 5, 7, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, why is Paul so concerned? Because you might look at this and, and uh, think, well, come on. I mean, hey, as long as it's Jesus, it's all that matters, right? Because they still believed in Jesus. So what if they add this other stuff to it? Here's what matters about that. They were not in danger of subtracting from Jesus, but they were in grave danger of adding to him. And when you add to the work of Jesus on the cross, Paul says in Galatians, you actually have a different gospel. That is not the gospel that saves. That you believe in Jesus and now you obey the law and you're going to be justified and you have eternal life. Just because it says Jesus in it doesn't mean it's the gospel. And that was not the gospel. Was Jesus' death enough or not? Or do we always need to add a little something-something in there? i got to do a little something something here. i got to be involved in this somehow. So I want to get my little thing that I do in there. Or I want to create a measure of some kind that I can know that I've jumped over so I can know that I'm saved. Really? This is what is commonly known as legalism. And legalism is, really it can be two things. It is either requiring some human righteousness or obedience in order to be saved... Or some righteousness or human obedience in order to stay saved. One does it before faith. The other adds it on after faith. And both of them are distorting the actual gospel. Which is that we do nothing in order to be saved. Or to stay saved. It is utterly of God. Amen? Amen. Okay. So. If Jesus came to set us free, he came to set us free from both the requirement to obey the law to be saved and the requirement to obey the law to stay saved. We're freed from that. Okay? The early church dealt with this in Acts 15. It was another moment where the Gentile Christians, now the, the Jews are saying, hey, you've got to do these things that we've been doing. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to do this or that. And the apostles gathered together and they wrote a letter and they said, no, that is not the gospel. Gentile Christians do not have to obey the Mosaic gospel, which was a burden to us for centuries. Why would we load it on the Gentile Christians now? And they wrote a letter to that effect. And friends, this is what distorting the gospel and inserting a little bit of human righteousness into the mix does. It creates bondages. It creates burdens. It creates this sense of, I don't know if I've done enough. I don't know if I am worthy enough. How how can I know if I'm going to be faithful to the end or not? It's about me, me, me. Have I done it? Is it me? And the gospel is, it's not about you. It is the grace of God that saves us. Run, John, and work the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. Now, I would say most of us like the thought that salvation is by grace alone. That justification is through faith alone. We like that. And yet, how many of us, while embracing that truth really are not trusting in justification. We're trusting in our sanctification. My hope is in who I am. My hope is in what I have done. Ask people this sometimes. Hey, how did you become a Christian? Well, I went forward and I did this or that. I grew up in the church and I went to Sunday school all the time. My dad was a deacon and my granddad was a preacher and this and that and all the rest. And they talk for 25 minutes. There's no Jesus at all in it. I've done this and then I was involved in this mission trip and then I went to forward at this certain rally with these two certain people and I love to read these kind of books and I'm all about that. Like, who cares about that? What does that have to do with how you became a follower of Jesus? It is not my doings. It is not my earnings. It is not my meriting that saves me. It is me receiving the grace of God by faith. That is the gospel, and we can't add anything to it. When we do, we are distorting the gospel. And this is one of the burdens that I have. I've pastored here for a long time. You've heard my story. I grew up in a in a tradition where, a church tradition, much of which I'm thankful for, but a lot of which I am not thankful for. In particular, they would preach justification by faith, maybe, I mean, they believed it. I don't, we didn't really, I don't remember getting messages on that so much, but uh, that was in the doctrinal statement. But after you became a Christian, it was almost like there was the Talmud that was now delivered to you. Here now are the things that you got to do because you're a Christian, right? And it was a list of this and that and all the rest. And, and how many of them are found in the Bible? Like, None. And yet everybody trying to conform to this mysterious list that's fallen from heaven, like to Joseph Smith or something, where does this come from? I don't know. And yet in my tradition, it was so important. And if you didn't follow the list of rules, your salvation was suspect. You're not a good Christian. We're not even sure you're a good person. Not if you're breaking this law or that. And of course, Jesus ran into the same thing with the Pharisees and was all the time messing with their mind by pointing out the hypocrisy of their rules, which were not found in Scripture. But how many people then, on the other side of believing in Jesus, or at least professing that, live their life not trusting in justification by faith, but on my sanctification? And how good a person I think I am. And the affirmation that I get from people. And people telling me that I'm a really good Christian person. Or maybe me even trying to do these things so that I get the affirmation from people. So that I can look in in the mirror and put my head on my pillow and know I must be going to heaven. Because deacon so and so praised me for being faithful to Sunday school. And I'm not like those other people at those other churches. Who aren't following the list that my church has. Trusting in things that are somehow different than the fact that we are saved by faith through grace. That we are declared righteous not because of our Sunday school attendance. And not because we're good people, but simply because of God's grace to us. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is a confusion over this doctrine. And it minimizes the grace of God and it maximizes man and what he has done. These rules, they enslave us. But God wants to set us free. And he sets us free by a gospel that involves no activity on our part at all. It is entirely God's work through Jesus on our behalf. Ensuring that man has nothing to boast about and can only trust in what Jesus has done. That is freedom, friends. The gospel sets us free from having to earn our salvation in some way as if we could. Now, there might be somebody here right now going, don't say that. Don't say that. Because if people actually... Think that they're saved entirely without respect to what they do or how they live. They may decide to live any way they want to. And it'd be immorality everywhere if everybody thought they were saved by grace. And Paul, anticipating that very argument, says in Romans 6:1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now I want to illustrate that verse with this picture. This picture, I think, was from this week. This is Liberia. And this guy, this is a a contamination suite, apparently, that they have set up there. And if you think that you have Ebola, you have to go to one of these areas. And they have certain tests, blood tests, or whatever they do, in order to determine whether or not people have Ebola. And of course, many, many people there, sadly, right now do. This guy goes through the whole examination and all of the tests, and they say, you don't have Ebola. You are free to go. And look at that look on his face. If you found out that you didn't have Ebola, what would you be doing? Dancing, right? Rejoicing, celebrating, partying all the way out of the contamination unit. So excited. Now let me ask you this question. This guy right here. He walks out of here having been said, you are free from contamination of Ebola. How do you think that he lives now regarding the Ebola in his country? Do you think he walks out and he, and he immediately goes and finds some contaminated materials and sort of plays with them? Do you think that he's going and trying to find some, uh, uh, you know, place where maybe he could get around people that have Ebola and kind of hang out with the Ebola crowd? Be all about Ebola, trying to get as much Ebola as he can? No! It would be ridiculous for somebody who has been declared free of contamination to walk out then after that declaration and be thinking about getting involved in Ebola again. It's a really good illustration, isn't it? Admit it. Admit it. You know exactly what I'm saying. If God declares us righteous, free from the virus of sin, which is more deadly than Ebola... Do we then on the other side of His grace say, where can I get myself some sin now? Where are the people gathering that are all about the sin? Because that's what I want now. Because I've been declared free from it. Now I want to get as much of it as I possibly can. I don't think so. And you see, friends, how... By saving us through grace, God does not motivate us to be involved in sin. He motivates us to obey him. Not to be saved, but in light of his grace to us in declaring us free from this contamination. To go and to sin no more. To go and to uh, try to live in obedience to him with the help of the Holy Spirit. I actually got thinking about this a little bit more, and I probably don't have time to share it, but I'm going to anyway. Go back to that picture, everybody. Or, or the, not everybody, but the people in charge here. Now, let's just say that actually what happened in that contamination unit is he was going through, and they said, You've got it. You're going to die. But standing there was the king of Liberia who had been given, like, there was only three antidotes, you know, vials of antidote, and he had gotten it. The king had gotten it. And the king's standing there, and he hears the word that this guy's going to die. And he says, all right, everybody, get him down. He says to the medics, Put, hook us up. And he says, I want to take, I'm taking his blood. You give me my, him my stuff. Okay. And the guy's like, what? I don't know if this is a good illustration. I don't know if, I don't know if I'll use it tomorrow or not, but... How does that guy walk out of that contamination unit if it was the king of Liberia who voluntarily took the Ebola for him? And how does he feel about the king now? Does he vote for him at the next election? Is he kind of like loving him, admiring him, almost worshiping him for the amazing grace that the king showed him? Take his Ebola. Should I use that tomorrow? Is that that pretty good? Okay. How many think I should use that tomorrow? How many say, it's too long a sermon already and you need to take that out? (laughs) That's freedom, friends. And if you're a Christian, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't come under the bondage again. Second freedom is the freedom that justification provides from the fear of man, or better to say, the obsessive need for the approval of others. Back to Galatians, Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 10, For I am... For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. What does he mean here? It means this, that to be accepted, or to be justified by God is to be accepted by God. It means that from that point on, God says, I will welcome you. I accept you. You don't have to Earn my grace. I give it to you freely. The only opinion that matters is mine. And in my eyes, you're righteous. I see you like with the love that I have for my own son. We are justified by God. We are accepted by God. What what better acceptance is there than that, right? Right? Remember, it was the Pharisees who were all the time worried about what other people thought about them. They were always trying to justify themselves in the eyes of others. Jesus said that in Luke 16 to the Pharisees. You are the ones who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Friends, fearing the the Proverbs says the fear of man is a snare. Fearing man, or, or again, better said, craving the approval of mortals is a bondage. It is a bondage that God has set us free from. The need to be accepted by others or the need to be considered to be successful or the need to be considered beautiful or the need to be considered uh, 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 smart, successful, popular. I mean, pick any of these things. Those needs are wiped away By God Almighty saying, I accept you, I welcome you, I love you. God justifies us. Why then do we so desperately desire justification from other people? God has set us free from that. I just got thinking about how much of culture, and even within the church, how much there is of this. How many people are there in the church that to this day, the opinion of your dad or your mom from 30 years ago still haunts you? You still feel incomplete. You still are trying somehow to gain their approval. How many people here think so carefully about what they post on Facebook because they, they want to be perceived by their friends as their family being perfect and their great parents and, and their, their kids are all, you know, perfect and uh, everything's great in their life and these very polished, edited perspectives of ourselves that we present to others, hoping that they'll sort of admire us and we'll have their approval somehow. Why? Why do we do this? What is at the core of this obsession with being accepted in the eyes of others? You know, we think about young people with this. And, of course, the adults, we kind of roll our eyes because we see the young people. And those teenagers, it's so clear to see it in them, right? They have to fit in. Have to fit in. Why? Because we're rebelling against our our parents. And I'm going to look like every single other person that goes to this school. I've got to have the right haircut, I've got to have the right clothes, right? I've got, to, I've got to talk the way, the lingo, the language, the little buzz phrases. I've got to be exactly like everybody else, hoping that maybe they'll accept me. I was a youth pastor for five years, saw it very clearly. You can just look at teenagers at the mall and you see them at the rat packs running around, so much wanting to be accepted by other people. Isn't it wonderful, adults, to be beyond this? (laughs) To be beyond immature obsessions with the opinions of others. What actually lies behind our fear of being identified as a Christian in the workplace? What actually lies behind our reticence to share the gospel with others. What are we afraid of? What are we actually afraid of to be a little bit different maybe than the culture that God says is going to hell? And yet you look at the church and you look at culture and the church is always kind of flying right behind culture. Why? Why do we need so much For people to think that we are with it, to think that we are, you know, we jump on the bandwagon of the latest fad and it can be almost anything and it gets popular. Oh, I got to go do that now, hoping that maybe by doing that, even in adulthood, my friends, my neighbors, my parents, my kids will justify me, will accept me. do you see it in the adults can you roll your eyes what do you think about a 46 year old guy who dresses totally hip and has a completely cool haircut trying to fit in i'm not sure what i'm talking about there <laughs> why do i care what other people think Because in justification, God has declared eternally what he thinks about me. Romans 5 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one opinion that matters, and it's the opinion that you hear on the other side of death, that millisecond when you stand before Vesuvius, God Almighty. And he welcomes you into heavenly dwellings. And he knows your name. Why do I need more than that? And why do I care about what all these other people think so much? There is so much bondage, it seems to me. in approaching my life based on performance, looks, body shape cultural hipness, popularity, accomplishment, or anything else related to me, God does not justify me because of any of those things, but simply by his grace. And why is that not enough for me? Why do I need all this other stuff? Not only does it change my self-identity, it changes the way that I can actually accept other people as well. If I realize that I am accepted by the grace of God, what should that mean about the basis for which I accept other people? Do I now bring in the law? Or am I accepting other people by the same grace that God has accepted me? And do you see how the church then ought to be just this place of magnificent grace? Vertically, for sure, but then even horizontally, right? Because we've tasted of this grace, and now here we are. Other people have tasted of this grace. Can I give grace to other people? Because God has given me grace? In fact, I would say justification by grace, through faith, frees Christian relationships from accepting others based on law. Our relationships are not based on law. They are based on love. They are based on grace that we have tasted from God first and now horizontally we give to one another. Romans 15, 7, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In your relationships, do people sense that you are accepting them because of who they are or based upon how well they perform for you as a friend or as a child? or as a spouse husbands how what do you do with those things that you see in your wife that you wish were different can't get over it do you nag her about it do you grovel in your heart against her about it does it impede your marriage because you've got you're basing your relationship with her not on grace but on law wives what do you do with your husbands and those things that you wish were different and why isn't he this and that and what do you are wait does he have to perform as a husband somehow at a certain measure of law for you to accept him or were you accepted by god by grace and what does that have to say about you accepting those in your life by grace how about your kids is that relationship based on performance or is that based on grace? And you see how justification is not simply just something out there in the future when Vesuvius shows up. It is for every single day when I realize that I have been saved by grace, that God has declared me righteous, that I'm accepted by God Almighty. Now in my relationships, and none of us do this perfectly, but we aspire to it. Now in my relationships, I can be accepting of people that have failures and that don't measure up and that have messes in their life. Because God accepted me when I didn't measure up and when I had messes in my life. And so again, the church then becomes this unique place in society. Where where do you go in our culture to find grace? Where in this where in America is there grace? Well, you go to government, maybe IRS, something like that new. No. <laughs> Do you get degrees from IU based on grace? Do they let you in by grace? Is your employer is, is that employment based on grace or performance? Where in this world do you go for grace? You go to the church. And you go to a church that gets justification. And it's in the DNA. And it pours out of the pores of the church. As people relate then to each other from a perspective where God has been gracious to me in a free gift. And now I can accept you like God has accepted me. I love this quote from Machen. He says, There are those who are concerned with the question of their standing before men, but never with the question of their standing before God. There are those who are interested in what people say, but not in the question of what God says. Such men, however, are not those who move the world. They are apt to go with the current. They are apt to do as others do. They are not the heroes who change the destiny of Destinies of the race. The beginning of true nobility comes when a man ceases to be interested in the judgment of men and becomes interested in the judgment of God. Would that this church would raise up young people who understand the gospel and who go out and be world changers, not trying to seek the approval of men. Would that our church would be people where the leadership of this church is not leading by polls, is not sort of wondering what is the cool thing to do, but what does God have for us? What is God's perspective on this? Would that we would have small group leaders in our church who look at their people in their small group imperfect as they are from a perspective of grace. Would that marriages in our church would be based on grace. Would that the principle of justification would work its way through into all of the aspects, the DNA of our congregation. Can I get an amen on that? Do we actually want that? Because that is a dangerous way to do church. The easy way is to create the rules and kick out anybody that doesn't conform. That's called manipulation. Which starts with man, interestingly. Manipulation. Let's start with God. All right. Here's the last freedom. <clears throat> and I do want to talk about the future. Freedom from the fear of judgment. Justification provides freedom from that dread. This was the word unfectung. Do you remember this from our first message? Martin Luther. We talked about how Luther went through his seminary, went through his training, and famously was absolutely terrified because of what the God that he saw in the Bible. And the way that his practice was in his uh, his church... He had no relief from this sense that he was under the wrath of God, and he realized that God was righteous and he was not. And he just he was desperate somehow to find righteousness that would give him standing before God. And yet he felt terror. In fact, that word infektung is a German word that he used to describe the ho- the sense of holy dread and terror that he had in his heart as he thought about what eternity would be like apart from God and under his condemnation, indeed, in a place called hell. What about you? Do you ever think about the future? Do you ever think about eternity? Do you ever think about this other world, this other reality that is infinitely longer than the brief life that we live in this world. Do you ever think about these things? Luther did. As you think about it, friend, are you ready? Are you ready for your moment? That millisecond we've been talking about, when you step from this world into the next. Are you ready to stand before Vesuvius? Are you ready to see him? Or not? What awaits you on the other side? And justification certainly is about this life, but it saves its best work for last, truly. And uh, some time ago, I'm going to tell you a quick story. Some time ago, I was on an international uh, trip. And uh, I was going to this, you know, strange country and you know, different currency, different language, very different kind of place in the world. And uh, I uh, had made plans with somebody to pick me up at the, at the airport, right? And so my flight is at this time. We'll be arriving. I'll be arriving at this time. So, uh, you know, can you pick us up? Yes, we'll be there and we'll be ready for you as you get off the plane. It'll be fine. Everything will be great. And so we landed and uh and uh, uh you know taxied up to the gate and i got out the plane and we headed down to the luggage i got my luggage got my stuff went through whatever immigration or whatever and began walking down this hallway and at the end of the hallway i could see the door and that door i could i could see people it's kind of translucent i could see people on the other side of the door you know i heard blah, 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 like this there was activity hustle bustle on the other side of the door and uh as i'm walking and maybe you've been in a moment like this i'm wondering what you know what's it like on the other side of the door what's awaiting me on the other side of the door so i went through the door and on the other side of the door this is what I saw. I took pictures. There were all of these guys standing there. Maybe you've seen this at airports. Holding names. Now these guys are porters and taxis and shuttle services. And they're all there waiting for somebody to get off the plane. And they're going to, you know, take them where they want to want to go. So you get off the plane. You go walking through this little door. And on the other side, there's this person standing there of course if you're traveling internationally you don't know anybody you got no connections you walk through the door what a relief it is to see you know your name and that person to say oh are you so and so yes i am how is the flight let me get your luggage the car's waiting right outside we're going to get you to your next destination everything's fine you're good great to see you and uh we'll have a nice time together what a relief it is to to see that well, here's what happened to me on this trip. I came walking through the doors. I see all of these people lined up. And I'm looking for my name, right? Like, okay, that's, you know, Cochrane or whatever that guy's. That's, that's not me. And that's not me. And that's not me. And that's not me. And so then I turn and here's, here's all these guys over here. And I'm looking at them. That's not me. That's not me. That's not me. That's not me. I go all the way down the line. There's nobody there that I can tell that is waiting for me. So, I began to kind of be like, oh, well, I'm sure it's going to be fine. <laughs> and I begin looking a little bit more. I go back through the list. I'm looking around. There's nobody. Now I think, well, maybe he came to the wrong door or gate or something. So I take off in the airport, and I'm trying to find some other place where maybe there's a group of people like this. And I would, you know, and I'm nothing. I think, well, maybe... Maybe he's in the car out where they, you know, the passengers can get in the car. So I go outside. I'm looking around. You know, nobody's honking the horn going over here. You know, there's none of that. And I'm starting to get this panicky feeling inside because I'm in a totally different country. I've already gone through immigration. I don't have a phone. I don't know what to do. I'm totally helpless in that moment. So this went on for an hour or two, running around, trying to do this or that, trying to figure something out, when all of a sudden, here's this guy, hello, hello, welcome, so good to see you, and off we went. Friends, when you go to a faraway land where you don't know what is coming, when you don't know what it's going to be like. Nothing is better than finding someone who knows you. Finding somebody who welcomes you. Finding somebody who meets you and your needs. And I can tell you with absolute certainty that you are going to take a trip someday. And it could be this week or some years in the future, you're going to take a trip and it will happen in a millisecond. To us, it will seem like a millisecond. Suddenly, all of a sudden, we will be transported from this world into a new country, into a new place. And this one is the eternal one. You ever think about what our feelings might be as that's happening, and I don't know how much time, or what I don't even know what that experience is like. But if you have moments in that Moving from here to there, what thoughts do you have? Realizing maybe that you've died and now there's a whole new thing about to come. What do you feel inside? What are you thinking about? And this will not be an airport. This will be eternity. And what is on the other side of that door determines... Our entire eternal experience. What awaits on the other side of that door will decide for me whether or not for me it is heaven, blessedness, and glory with God, or condemnation, judgment, and hell. What kind of panicky Holy dread might arise within me that I may spend eternity without welcome, without identity, and without righteousness. And my dear friends, justification is God's personal guarantee that on the other side of the door, He will be there. And when I walk through that door, There he will be, welcoming me, accepting me, knowing me by name, and welcoming me into his eternal bliss. And when I understand what that day is going to be like, it helps me live this day without fear without obsession about what other people think, without a lot of baggage, but with freedom. And that is what Christ has done. Therefore, having been justified by his grace, we have peace with God. And I just want to ask, do you, are you ready to stand before him? Are you righteous by God's declaration through faith in Jesus? And if not, why not trust in Christ right now? Believe and be saved. And be declared righteous. And have the promise of what that moment will be like. I pray that you will. Freedom. Let's stand together for prayer.